Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. It is hard to believe in many ways, looking back from 2023, I suppose, that there was a time, of course, when homosexuality in Australia was a criminal activity. Uh, In fact, it was decriminalised in parts of Australia only very recently in in uh, recent years in 1984 in New South Wales been the 90s I think in Tasmania before that time consensual sex between gay men was a criminal act Australia's queer communities fought long and hard for their rights over the last 50 years from the early days uh, early days and years of the camp group to Rodney Croom's activism in Tasmania during the 1990s and the fight of course for same sex marriage in 2017 As a a huge world gathering called World Pride comes to Australia in the coming weeks, we thought we'd profile some of the LGBTQI members of the community. And as we know, there are many unsung heroes in the community, people doing good without asking for recognition, people working in the areas of HIV, uh, activism, suicide prevention, the right to marry, transgender rights, My next three guests are all members of the queer community and they were all awarded an Order of Australia medal recently. Uh, David Paulson was one of the first people in Australia to be diagnosed with HIV. He's spent his life educating people about the reality of the disease. Rebecca Johnson's a goring goring woman, former head of Brisbane Pride and has worked in the area of suicide prevention. Her work with the First Nations queer community is in the eyes of many unmatched. And Michael Barnett is the uh, co-convener of the Victoria-based LGBTQI uh, plus Jewish advocacy group, Aleph Melbourne. Michael's work with Melbourne's Jewish community for the acceptance of queer Jewish people. Uh, well, to all of you, to uh, David, good evening to you. Lo- lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Lo- lovely to be here. Great to have you with us. Uh, Michael, great to have you with us as well. Hi, Philip. A pleasure to be here. Hi, and Rebecca. Terrific to have you with us as well. Hi, everyone. Great to be joining in. Yeah. Uh, Look, congratulations to all of you, too, on your awards as well. David, can I start with you? You were, uh, we'll get back to your work in the area of HIV activism, activism, but you were one of the first people to get HIV AIDS back in the 1980s. I think one of the first 400 people to get it. Yes. And I, I mean, we should say this, this sobering statistic of the 400 people who, who were amongst the first 400, there are only, I understand, 32 people of whom you're one of them still alive. We think that's correct. We, yeah. Because the figures, because those sort of people back then didn't tell people that they were HIV positive, and that secrecy has still kept on with a lot of those people. So if they did survive, it's, they have, we don't know. We, I, I put out a call for the survivors and I've had no one. But we, we know that it's at least 28 to 32 mm. that are still mm. here. I mean, it's one of those stark f- figures which indicates to you just how the crisis impacted people back yeah. then. And that was, the, that was the, the sort of death toll we were seeing. The doctor at the time said to you, I mean, I want, tell us about what it was like to get a diagnosis. Like The doctor said, I understand to you... Don't tell, don't tell too many people that you've been diagnosed. Correct. How, does yeah. that, how did that feel? Well, imagine I was 20, 28, about to turn 29, and I was told I was going to die. It was absolutely, it was a death sentence back then. Mm. So I had to deal with that. And then in two minutes later, he told me not to tell anyone. It was incredible. 
when I was diagnosed, um, I tell people that uh, the, my reaction was I felt like I was falling down this big black bottomless pit. And as I was falling down, there were these dreadful fe- feelings of disbelief, suffocating terror, uh, guilt, shame. It was it was mm. a horrible thing. And then on top of that, he says, don't tell anyone. Uh, so you were mm. told you were going to die, and then you couldn't tell in- anyone. You couldn't tell anyone what you had. No. And so th- that was almost as bad as being diagnosed with HIV AIDS. Yeah, because the thing is, at the time, wasn't it, that it was mixed up entirely with a message, a negative message, about what being gay was like. Oh, and, it was and, a... and being gay meant you got these kinds of diseases and died. And, well, you know, that was tied up in a whole image of what gay people were. Correct, set, set, yes. Set the image of, of, of gay people and activism on behalf of gay people back decades. Absolutely. And not only that, uh, Philip, it set a stigma that has, excuse me, a stigma against gay men Mm. that has lasted and is appalling because now today we've got these wonderful medications that can um, control HIV or with PrEP can stop negative people contracting HIV, but people won't come forward to test because of the stigma that still surrounds HIV and it's really hindering the battle to end HIV because we've got the tools to do that. Yeah, well, let's talk about that in a moment too because that's really important because we've come a long way and pretty much if you don't, if you, if you are aware these days, you don't, you won't die of AIDS, uh, pretty much. There was a genuine fear back then, though, wasn't it? I mean, gay people were dying in their hundreds. Oh, yes. Uh, Tell us about the friend who was despairing about his address book. Oh, that was terrible. Um, A very close friend of mine rang me one day and he said to me, David, I've just been to a funeral and it was the last name in my address book. He said, I'm 30 and I've lost all my friends in my address book. I don't have any friends from that address book. They've all gone. So imagine at 30, losing all your friends. It was, I just felt so, so sorry for him. It was Mm. awful. Mm. Yeah, and at the same time, as you say, uh, people associated this disease with the gay community. They they thought, they thought it was, it was caused by the gay community. It was, and uh, lots of people had uh, all sorts of other negative views about that it was it was a, a terrible terrible time it was it? yes and people forget today that um the violence against um gay men increased exponentially during those years and in fact all those men who were murdered were murdered at that time and the, it was uh, carte blanche to go out and bash a pufta because they were spreading aids and they deserved it. They deserved to be bashed. And if they got killed, well, so what? Mm. Yeah, exactly. And that is not putting it too bluntly, quite quite frankly, either. No. Mm. We'll get to your participation. And I want to ask you about this in a moment, why you felt it was your duty to help out with research on HIV AIDS, because you did. And you participated in something like 28 
HIV drug trials. I'm, su- I'm surprised you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> I am too. Uh, Rebecca, can we bring you in here? I'll, I'll get back to you in a moment, David, about yeah, this sure. too. The, the, Rebecca, thanks for, thanks for joining us. How, how would you describe the journey for First Nations queer people over the last 30 years? Yeah, well, I, like, I think it's been um, ex- an extremely tough journey with, with many uh, lessons along the way. But those, unfortunately, those, those lessons have come with a price of, you know, having had the experiences. Um, and I, it's, it's not the easiest for First Nations and I identify as First Nations and Australian South Sea Islander. Mm-hmm. And the, it's, it's, not, um, it's not an easy journey. Um, and the advocacy for me started quite young because of the isolation and this discrimination, um, you know, being a minority group inside of a minority group. And we've heard that for many years, but we still um, ex- seem to experience um, those uh, feelings of isolation, separation. And I think that for me the, the journey has consistently been about uh, listening um, and um, being able to provide, you know, identified and strong support um, to to people that might be experiencing similar journeys to me, and particularly a passion of mine is to, you know, whatever I've learned in my advocacy and community work over the years is to to make sure um, I continue what culture tells us to do, and that's to consider the generations behind us. Mm. Yeah, tell me about that isolation. Isolation not only presumably because of your sexuality, but also isolation because of your First Nations status as well, was it? Yeah, so, um, you know, in, in 2008, we started a, a group called Indigilez Women's Group um, to provide and open up a safe space for um, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and Australian South Sea Islander women to come um, and to share their stories um, and to provide each other with a sense of sisterhood and and womanhood and sharing of knowledges and strengths because we were all going through similar experiences and journeys where we just didn't fit in inside of the non-Indigenous LGBTIQ plus community. Um, And and obviously, you know, sitting at the the core of that is our ways of working and and knowing and being as um, First Nations peoples. Mm. Yeah. Back then, of course, a lot of gay activists... And the original ones were were mainly white men. I mean, the, do you yeah. think the queer, queer community has become more inclusive in the last twenty years? And what was what was racism like in the yeah. queer community back then? Because presumably it wasn't absent, was it? No, no. And I I think it, it's fair to say that it, it wasn't it wasn't absent then, and it isn't absent now. Mm. Um, and you know, experiences of racism were like you know we can. As a mob, we can speak to those from childhood. Um, we start experiencing racism very young. Mm. Um, and, you know, it just so happens that I come from really two strong parents that were really grounded in culture and, and, and brought me up quite resilient to those experiences of racism and understanding to, to seize opportunities to give back with a broader human rights lens Um you know, for people more broadly across communities. Mm. I know it's hard to generalise with all of these things, but in general, how were queer people received in in Indigenous First Nations communities? Was there a similar level of prejudice mm. that there exists 
that existed, for example, in in white societies? Mm. Yeah, interesting question. I think I can speak to my experiences and I know with mine that, you know, 90% of my family have been accepting um, and have been loving, have been supportive, have been open to education, um, to yarning about things when they didn't understand things. And, you know, that, that 10% um, obviously um, growing up in a very religious family, that, that other 10% um, was a part of my journey of um, healing myself mm. when I knew it went beyond isolation to a point of, a clear defined boundary because I identified um, as a black lesbian. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, When you came out, of course, I understand you're also part of a Christian family too. So dealing with your family's faith and your own sexuality was Mm. a kind of a double whammy for you, was it? Yeah, it was. And, um, you know, I always hold um, respect to some of those um, core um, teachings that are really uh, lovely values around, you know, unconditional love and kindness and those um, spiritual healthy principles to have and values to have in our lives. Um, I've always been quite passionate about retaining those. Um, but, you know, like anything, we, we ferment and we grow through our experiences um, into the humans that we are today. And, um, you know, although I might have a different lens and a different thinking around religion, I certainly um, am, am very honoured to have two uh, very um, beautiful parents that brought me up uh, mm. with a religious background. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that. Tell me what's your relationship with the Christian faith then as a, as a queer person? Um, I think for me, I um, I believe there is something um, outside of this world, and uh, my journey just hasn't taken taken me to the point yet uh, where I believe in what form it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely um, believe um, in in really healthy ways of thinking about the journey after life. Mm. You've been in this position many times, I would imagine, in the last two decades because you've been working in, in a lot in suicide prevention. You've been talking with young Indigenous queer people coming to you and saying, Rebecca, I think I might be queer. I'm not sure what to do. What do you typically say to a person who comes to you and, and, and opens up like that? Yeah, I think it's about really, um, you know, th- th- those kind of opportunities for our mob um, we do that regularly, open up and, and share with each other. And, and when I come across young people um, and older people that open up to me about um, their sexuality or gender identity, it's always an open um, conversation because um, I want them to walk away feeling empowered um, and I want them to walk away feeling that, you know, they've spoken to an, an older person or a colleague or a friend or a titter that has helped shaped their confidence and their resilience within themselves and that's always the way that I've thought about things. Mm. Yeah, suicide prevention has been a big thing with you. Tell me why this, why that's so important. I mean, maybe that question answers yeah. itself, but tell me about your relationship with it. Yeah, so um, I think my mental health um, started journey started when I was quite young. Um, you know, Understanding um, my identity wasn't so clear at the start um, and um, I lived my life since, since quite young on antidepressants um, to regulate and help me to think 
clearly and to have um, a well-balanced life and to contribute back to community. Um, so for me, um, that I've had experiences of suicidality um, and mental health and I've also had the experience of getting um, to a position in my life where I understand the key healing tools that I need to adapt in my life um, to make me a healthy human and a contributing human back to giving back to society. And I, I hope that when I spend time with people that, that that's what I, um, you know, um, am able to share with them. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, can we bring Mike, can, Michael, can I bring you in here? Michael Barnett uh, is with us as well. Um, Michael is uh, a, a queer and also a Jewish activist. Uh, Michael, you were Jewish in 26 when you decided to come out. Who did you reach out to? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I was just uh, literally just reflecting on that and the, the journey of, of getting there was, was like 16 years in the making and, and it's mid-September 19... 19- 95 um and i'd sort of been aware of a a jewish support group for gay and bisexual men mm-hmm. that i'd seen advertised in the jewish newspaper in melbourne and uh, i sort of clipped the advert and and sort of put it away for safekeeping <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> things i felt i might need in my sort of self-help kit one day and and i called that number and i, I spoke to a guy who who was using the name harvey right and uh said to him look i need to talk about this pretty important issue in my life and uh we met and had a chat and I guess that the rest of that is history, but it's the first step in a, in a fascinating journey I've Can had imagine, yeah. the last Cause your of 25 years. Your background was Orthodox Jewish too, I thought, wasn't it? Uh, or pretty much? Yeah, sort of. Um, traditional with a with an influence of Orthodox. It, it, it's not. I was never really brought up especially religious, but I did end up uh, having bar mitzvah at, a, at an Orthodox synagogue in, right. in Doncaster. And um, that's kind of the the background that my my mother's family had. Yeah, I, I'm told when you rang that hotline for for Jewish gay people that the person Harvey you spoke to also insisted on being anonymous. That was the kind of environment you were in. No? That you, yeah. you could speak, but it had to be done with secrecy. Yeah, he 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 didn't uh, advertise his his real name because. Uh, yeah, confidentiality reasons. He just didn't uh, feel comfortable mm. being known in the community as a as a gay man. Mm. That was that was, uh, and but had potentially, you know, that 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 would would be for many people still mm. Mm. still is an issue. It is. Uh, yeah. What was the mood? What was the what was the the atmosphere like for for Jewish people? I mean, there were. Uh, this was twenty five years ago, I suppose, but a, a lot of conservative rabbis were not exactly accepting about homosexuality, were they? I wouldn't limit it to conservative rabbis. I think it was a topic that was uncomfortable for a lot of people and Mm. I think the language, the vernacular, really wasn't there to, to sort of raise it in a... In a in a sort of a casual conversation, uh, it was sort of not really spoken about. And I think what I did was put it on the table and, and sort of put it front and center. And this is now going to be a dinner table conversation. Uh, such was the um, you know, enthusiasm I had for eliminating the stigma. Uh, and I sort of had uh, media attention, front page headlines, uh, this and that going on because I just wanted it to be something that people knew about and it wasn't something that you had to whisper, uh, you know, and sort of talk about in hushed mm. tones. When did you become quite open about it in that in that sense within the Jewish faith? Um, I, I kind of 
initially it was sort of around 99 that I felt that we needed to have that conversation in the Jewish community in a broader sense. We talked to talk about it and have acceptance of a social and support group within the Jewish community in Melbourne uh, to, to sit amongst the other organisations that were represented on the Jewish Community Council of Victoria. Mm. And I felt that if we had that sort of quote marks legitimacy as an organization we could then have conversations about uh, and similar topics we've just talked about is mental health issues and suicide and really that's all it was to me was a, you know those those issues were the front and foremost issues for me to deal with uh, not personally but for other people um, and and uh, sort of that was uh, an agenda that I, I had very passionate about um, and, and then it sort of re-sparked in uh, 2009 uh, after sort of a period of, of not a great deal of, of activism when in Tel Aviv there'd been that shooting in the, the youth, the LGBT youth centre and I kind of felt that we needed to, uh, as, a, as a community in Melbourne, speak out against that, whatever it was, if it was a hate crime or not, I don't know that it ever... Mm. was resolved, but I felt that we needed to say something and nobody was actually saying anything at, at the top level and I felt that the silence was completely unacceptable. Uh, and so I kind of ramped things into overdrive again and um, sort of got especially angry when people didn't want to say anything and, and decided it was uh, well and truly time for people to start talking about these and just not pretend, you know, pretend that they weren't happening. Yeah. You've worked around sexuality and faith over the last 20 years. Uh, Tell me about where where we're at now in terms of of young queer people in the Jewish community coming forward and saying, that's who I am and I don't want to go anywhere, I want to be here. There's a range of uh, perspectives. I mean, you you have... As with many communities, a range of diversity, and in the Jewish community, no less. So we have uh, progressive Judaism, which which is completely, you know, one of the forefront uh, forerunners in calling for marriage equality and and sort of LGBT visibility, and and increasingly we're seeing that sort of uh, throughout more of the the mainstream Jewish community talking about these issues. Um, I, I've I've even um, had the pleasure of of uh, meeting a, an Orthodox rabbi from New York City, mm-hmm. ultra-Orthodox rabbi from New York City who, uh, you know, it would be that sort of stereotypical black hat and coat type uh, ultra-Orthodox um, rabbi and he um, has a, a you know, transgender relative and um, has been very passionate as a, as an ally for LGBTIQ plus visibility. And this is what I would have considered completely unheard of um, and yet here he is, this this ultra-Orthodox Jew uh, mm. in pride, pride rallies um, and, and sort of for <laughs> transgender rights. And, and I would say that he is one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. And he, in fact, is, when you talk about where would young people go to, he has rabbis from around the world coming to him saying, I've got a person I'd like to you to talk to, you know, who I'm trying to help. Can you help? And he would say, and what is it about? And they'd say, well, you know. That they can't talk about it, but they're trying to find support for these people in their communities, yeah. and they've got this network of underground network of rabbis who mm. uh, are trying to support queer people without overtly saying they're doing that, which is quite fascinating, really. Yeah. Just before we go on, uh, Christopher from Kirribilli, who is says I've been out to my mother and father since July 1991. Uh, 
who takes issue with our use of the term queer, uh, and I'm well, I've been using it as a um, umbrella term with LGBTQI plus, and as I understand it, queer is yeah, an acceptable term to be used in that context as well. I mean, do the, do the three of you have any issue with us using that that, that terminology? Well. David? Uh, with Q, um, Qtopia Sydney, uh, the, uh, Sydney's first queer museum, we had discussions for months and months and months about it. We yeah. all felt that LGBTQIA plus was a mouthful. It was a cumbersome term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we really struggled to come to a term. And we all agreed at the end that queer was the acceptable term in today's world. And when I grew up, Queer wasn't an acceptable word, but it is now. For a lot of older gay men, it, of course, it was a, was a very pejorative term, wasn't it? Absolutely, and, and this yeah. is what we had to bear in mind. And mm. um, it, it is a, a, a complex question, but uh, I believe that queer is all-encompassing. It, it, it covers everything. So. Mm. Rebecca, do you have a comment on that? No, I, don't, I think I don't. Um, in terms of like um, like a, a national, state level, or a localized level, I've always w- worked through a localized approach and let communities just identify how they how identify they, how in they community. How they want, yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. Michael, uh, um, look, I have a, a couple of things. One, I'd, one I'd like to say is I'm quite comfortable with the term queer. I was born in 1969. To my thinking, it's never been an offensive word. I understand some people may have used or it been used at them in an uncomfortable mm. way. Um, it, it sort of fits for some people who don't identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual or other terms. Um, but, but to that end, um, if one's wanting to talk about offensive words, I find the word straight completely offensive. I find it pigeonholes people, it divides people, it creates the most terrible toxic cultures. And if you really want to look at a word that's offensive, look at the word straight. Mm. I think we're all learning to have some more thoughtful conversations aren't we and we're all learning to have some more thoughtful nuanced thinking about about where sexuality is um is not pigeonholed uh i think that's probably true but david can we get back to you because i'm, I'm as i say i'm surprised you're still here because you you you're not only um you're not only were, were one of the first or the early people to contract hiv aids back in the 1980s but you decided to offer up your body for research trials as well tell me about that experience because back in those, I can imagine there were some pretty horrific side effects, weren't there? Oh, the, the side effects... Because they didn't know what to do, did they? No, they, no. they didn't know anything. The side effects uh, were absolutely horrendous. They were... My life was like... I think the best way to explain it to people is like I was living on chemotherapy for nearly 25 years. So you can imagine mm. the the side effects, and they got they were worse. They just got worse and worse and worse. Uh, but I felt that if I was feeling this dreadful, I thought, well, I wonder what the virus is feeling. It's probably not feeling terribly good. So I'm going to continue with this. But I my my reason for doing the trials was that when we when HIV was first. The surface, there was so much fear and so much, well, so such a lack of knowledge about HIV. Mm. And then when I was diagnosed, I, I just felt it was my duty, it was incumbent upon me to 
to do this to say, because they didn't know anything. The doctors didn't know anything. And presumably there weren't that many people they could call upon to do trials either because people no. were, di- were dying, weren't they? They, they were, were just, dying. Yeah. And also people weren't, didn't want to do the trials because of the toxicity of the drugs, which I totally, believe me, I totally understand that. The drugs were dreadful. Mm. Did they make a difference? I mean, eventually, as we know, drugs did make a difference. Oh, but, yes. But uh, back then? Look, I can't say yes or no. You just felt shocking anyway. I just felt <laughs> shocking. But I, I survived. And I think, yes, collectively, uh, I think as we went along, the drugs got better and better and better. So they did help. And ultimately, we got to the point with triple therapy. Mm. And I got to a regimen which suited me. And I've been on that ever since, um, since... 2011, I think. I, mm-hmm. for, I forget. Time just sort of melts into one big blur. But I think yeah. it's 2011. Tell us, tell us about that. I mean, because there was a treatment. I mean, the, there were big steps, really, pretty much in the mid 90s, weren't there? There was, there were, you know, progress was made with AZT, I think it was, and and other drugs too, and there were antiviral drugs, and and working out the combination that would work with people and there were all of a sudden I think people began to see a way forward did they yes indeed in 1996 that was the year of the big breakthrough the mm. first big breakthrough that with the protease inhibitors yeah uh once they hit things changed the people who were dying stopped dying they 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 had a remission mm. and but with the protease inhibitors, there were so many side effects that were so ghastly, but they did help. They, they were the start of the the hope and the light at the end of the tunnel. Hmm. Um, but AZT was a really toxic drug right from the beginning. I was on it for about a year, and then I had to go off it because I I thought I was dying. I hmm. rang I rang David Cooper one one day at work. And said, I, "David, I'm dying. I I can't cope with this." He said, well, "He took me off AZT. Mm. So I, they are they do still do use AT as the AZT in tiny doses now. Mm. But yeah, 1996 was the big year with the protease inhibitors. And pretty much these days, is am I right in saying this that pretty much these days, if you are diagnosed with HIV, because the drug hasn't, the disease hasn't gone away. It's oh, no. not, by, not by a long chalk. No, 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 it's still there. It's still there. But mm. uh, but if you are diagnosed with HIV, uh, there, is a, there is a drug regime that will, will, where doctors could pretty much, well, can pretty much say, you're not going to die from this. Absolutely. Uh, mm. If you're diagnosed with HIV today, you go on one pill a day, mm. uh, I went. I had. I was taking forty-eight pills a day. Forty-eight. Forty-eight. Yes. So you can imagine going from forty-eight. This is the the progress. You're having a rattling good time there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they take one pill a day, yeah. and effectively they can lead just an, uh, a productive and happy life as someone who's not HIV. So it's a huge, huge breakthrough. Mm. Uh, and you'll stay on that pill a day. Is that, yeah, that's yeah. yeah. You you have to stay on that pill a day. Mm. That pill a day reduces your HIV viral load to undetectable. Mm. Where they can't detect HIV in your body, which 
means that you can't pass on the virus to anyone, which is incredible. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. Rebecca, your 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 memories too. You, you'd remember that those times and the fear of HIV AIDS was palpable. I mean, le- lesbian people were quick to to help too, weren't they? Oh, look, absolutely. I think um, again, um, the fight was real. Um, fighting for for the fair rights and fighting for equality, fighting for recognition, and fighting together as a community and. I think the last, you know, the the last, um, you know, couple of years at Brisbane Pride has has really taught me that I've had opportunity to sit with older folk and to listen to their stories that are extremely traumatic, mm. um, and remind me um, constantly of the work that we have to do to recognise um, the past to be able to 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 have a you know um, a healthy shared future together. Mm. What do you think are the big issues with with young First Nation queer people these days, Rebecca? Look, I think that we um, still experience um, high rates of racism. Yeah. Um, and and as I mentioned earlier, they're, they're experiences that that start at a young age for us, and um, we're able to identify those. And, and every time they they happen, it, it's re-triggering. Um, definitely um, within Australia there needs to be um, a more stronger investment in First Nations, LGBTIQ+, sister, girl and brother, boy communities. Um, we, don't, we don't see that um, yet in terms of um, the government having us at the table to be a part of the um, voice and the solutions to um, closing the gap um, across um, our communities. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, uh, while there are many um, issues such as racism um, and still isolation um, and discrimination that we experience, um, on the other hand, we're also asking to, to, to have a place at the table in our own affairs as well, making decisions um, about issues that impact our lives mm. um, and the broader community's lives. How much easier is it, would you say today, for, for young First Nations people to come out? Yeah, look, again, I think um, without, you know, vital services um, within our states and territories being resourced um, and co-designed to provide uh, services that are culturally safe and and culturally appropriate uh, for First Nations uh, young people, um, then we'll continue to see um, some of the the strong data that tells us that uh, we're not travelling so well um, as a result of the trauma that we experience. Mm -hmm. Back to you, David. Tell me about Ward 17 at St Vincent's. That was like a sort of ground zero, wasn't it? It was, and Ward 17 South was a haven for people with HIV, AIDS. Uh, And I have to to mention this because these people are forgotten. The Sisters of Charity were the first amongst the very first people in the world to respond to the AIDS crisis, and they said... We must look after these people. They need our care, love and support. This is important, isn't it? Because at the time, there was resistance, wasn't there, to even going anywhere near these near people who were infected. Yeah, absolutely. And getting proper medical treatment yes. was not a given, was it? It wasn't. Uh, the, very many hospitals refused to take in AIDS patients uh, mm. at, at the time. So for these nuns to say... 
unconditional support, unconditional love, unconditional care was incredible. They defied the, the Vatican. They defied the then Archbishop of um, Sydney. Mm. They were told not to do it. And they said, no, it is our mission to do it. So they set up Ward 17 South and it was a place of great care. It was a place of great sadness because there were young men as young as 18, 19, dying, coming in. Um, but it was also a place of great, surprisingly, um, it was dark humour, it was black humour, but there was a lot of... There was a lot of laughter in there as well. It, was, uh, it wasn't all bleak and horrible. Mm, mm. Michael, back to you. One of the key moments in your activism is when you received an apology from one of the pink Jewish bodies in Melbourne. Tell me about that. Yes, uh, Philip, that was, that was a 20-year anniversary of the occasion where um, Aleph Melbourne, which is the organisation that I represent, mm. Um, had applied to the Jewish Community Council of Victoria and uh, at a vote of their plenum, uh, the membership application uh, didn't pass. And uh, on that evening, there was uh, uh, there were a range of speakers and some of the people who had spoken against the uh, motion for the membership application uh, used language which was, was, was quite, uh, quite unpleasant um, and one one would say homophobic, and uh, on the 20, 20th anniversary of that, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd been in contact with um, the organisation, the Jewish Community Council of Victoria, who in fact at the time actually the president had supported our application. Uh, uh, Philip Bliss uh, had supported us applying to the, uh, the council. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and they um, had issued a, uh, an apology um, the wording was that they unconditionally apologised to all members of the community who were impacted by the rejection of the membership application and for the unacceptable homophobic views expressed during the debate. That's That was the wording that they'd issued. That was pretty big. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It was. It was... A <laughs> Yeah. It, it was. It took a such apologies a, were pretty thin on the ground it, it, over it, the last it, twenty or thirty years, haven't they? Yes. Look, it was very welcome. It didn't come spontaneously, but it was mm. very welcome. Um, and I think we've we've in many ways moved on from that. And in two thousand and fifteen, the organisation did accept a, an application from a Jewish gay gay or LGBT group called Keshet, uh, which is presently non-operational, but did accept their membership application and um, you know, things, things have significantly changed. And in 2017, they passed a motion in support of civil marriage equality. So yeah. uh, things, things have come ways away since then and, and I would say that a lot of the activism I've done over the years has contributed to the change in attitude yeah, I'm sure it has. Um, I'm sure it has. Could I just make one quick mention, just going back to the previous topic of HIV/AIDS, that mm. my offsider, who uh, is co-convener with me at Olive Melbourne, Colin Chrysler, and who won the Victorian Pride Award for the Volunteer of the Year last Friday night, um, had spent many years as a as a volunteer with HIV/AIDS people. Um, I mean, we all before I knew him with the Victorian AIDS Council and um, has been was very much involved in supporting people with HIV AIDS. Mm. Yeah, it's very yes. close to me in that regard. No, rightly said. Can we go? We, you mentioned the plebiscite in two thousand and seventeen. This was a huge moment in in the life of gay people, of queer people in Australia, because all of a sudden it wasn't the government saying things. This was the people of Australia saying things, and they were saying, you know what, it's okay. 
and they said it in large numbers too in 2017. Mm. Tell me about how big that was as a milestone for for all of you. Rebecca, maybe maybe start with you. That that the people of Australia said, you know what, it's okay. Was that how you felt? Yeah, I think I think um, look, it was an awesome uh, feeling uh, at the time, very overwhelming and somber feeling as well to to finally uh, the penny to drop and um, to to right in front of us we saw and people recognized um that um that marriage equality was supported um you know because we often we sort of live in our own little worlds and Mm. um isolate ourselves from different things but you know it it it, it gave a sense that there's more support than what you know for me personally than what I, i thought there would be yeah that's right i suppose that's what i'm getting to did you suddenly think ah maybe Ah, because after all, you're dealing as an activist with with trying to counter that that prejudice, uh, and that can that can make you hostage, I suppose, to, to the feeling that well, that's what the feeling is in the community. It's one of of, of prejudice. I'm not trying to gloss over the fact that there is, but mm. was there a, re- a real sense of a window being thrown open in in 2017? I think so. Um, I think so. We we. Um, you know, looked around us and saw that society was with us on the on the journey. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's that's vitally important to to have a broader impact on you know our um, com- community controlled sector, our um, government organisations, and private businesses. And the message was very very clear that mm. it was supported. Um, so um, I think that that in itself. Um, really delivered a strong message um, back to our communities. Yeah. What about you, Michael? Um, did that did it feel like you'd suddenly, the, you know, thrown open the front door and, gee, it's not so bad out here after all? Oh, it was certainly a turning point in Australia. Uh, it had been a fight that I'd been involved with for a very long time for the best part of 13 or 14 years, tirelessly attending rallies and, and, and all sorts of, all sorts of um, actions. Uh, attending the first meeting of Australia Marriage Equality in 2004 and uh, being very much involved. Uh, d- d- despite the outcome, as, as you know, the wonderful outcome, there was so much vitriol and, and uh, division and, and that postal vote wasn't, wasn't technically a plebiscite. A postal vote which was forced upon us by the uh, Liberal government and, and certainly not passed because they wanted to pass it happened to pass under their government but certainly against their best wishes um that was the most intensely divisive and disgusting time that i think i've ever had to endure as a person of this community and and an australian it was hideous absolutely hideous and i'm glad that that's gone away that has gone over there are still lots of hideous out there and there's lots of people trying to ruin our lives and make our lives a complete misery and i'm certainly up up for that fight Mm. Yeah, I agreed, but did it give you – it must have given you – it must have put a spring in your step, didn't it? It must have given you some fire in the belly. You oh. must have thought, you know what, perhaps it is not as grim as I thought it was going to be. It was in, – in some it, – look, it, it was great, but it, for me it was in slightly disappointing because my husband and I wanted to get married with an Australian – marriage certificate and unfortunately we were denied that because we went to New Zealand in 2014 to get married um, as part of the uh, for a TV show and mm. um, or on a TV show and and sort of coming back to Australia after then we found that we couldn't actually get that certificate on Australian Australian uh, marriage certificate um, so 
we were happy that we got married in New Zealand and it was a wonderful place and we're very grateful to New Zealand for mm. the opportunity. Mm. Um, it was mixed, mixed feelings. Um, great that people can get married here and similarly they can get divorced here too. Um, <laughs> which is a current topic. It was actually, I heard it on the on our end this morning, the topic of, of gay or same-sex divorce. Well, I presume uh, same-sex divorce is pretty much the same as... as <laughs> As straight sex divorces, well, that, that, that it, is, it was, it's about half. Well, the irony was that after I'd got married, we got married in New Zealand. There was no way that we could actually get a divorce until the law changed in Australia, because you had to live in New Zealand for twelve months to get a divorce there. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't going to New Zealand to live for twelve months. Not that it was an issue, but yeah, it was an awkward situation. Well, for all of you, what do you what do you say to someone who says, "Look, you know, what, why are we still talking about all this? Why are we having?" World Pride, what's it, what's going on? I mean, the battle's been won. Queer people have got pretty much full rights now. Uh, it's not a it's it's not a big deal anymore. Uh, there would be parts of Australia where that's probably true. It's not a big deal anymore. What do you say? What do you say to those to people who who say that to you? Like, you know, why are we having all this palaver about World Pride, David? Well, I think it's incredibly important because yes, there is a lot of acceptance and and pockets around Australia, as you said, the majority of the people were pro-same-sex marriage, hmm. but there is a huge uh, anti-homophobic uh, group of people um, who are de dedicating their lives to trying to reverse everything, trying to take away our rights, and we need to show people that we are strong. We've come this far. We're not going back. But it's also not just this country. It's the rest of the world. There are so many places around the world where being, where being queer is a death sentence. They, people are executed. Yeah. Uh, you just have to look at Russia, what a dreadful situation is happening in Russia with the queer community uh, and other places around the world. So we need to stand united worldwide. That's my opinion. I think that we... We need to show we are strong, we're resilient, we've come this far and we're not going back and we will, we will keep going and we contribute so much to the world that World Pride shows this. That we, it shows how strong and how great we are. Still here. We're still here and we're still <laughs> queer. Still here. <laughs> Michael, for, for, for you, what do you, what do you say to people who, who say that? Because this gets said, doesn't it? We're said a lot, more after, possibly after 2017. Well, you know, what, there, there what? are plenty of issues. There's still lots of injustice in Australia. I can't mm. donate blood. Um, I don't have HIV. I don't have any bloodborne viruses and I'm not allowed to donate blood. Why? There's a lot of uh, discrimination in regard to that. People are judged on their, gen on their sexuality, not on their... Risk of um, you know, risk of, of having a having a, a disease. Um, trans and gender diverse kids face a lot of discrimination, mm. and uh, uh, it's terrible. I, I know of people who get bashed because they're transgender, and that's absolutely disgusting. And people need to stand up for trans and gender diverse people, whether they are um, you know young people or, or older people. It's 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 outrageous. Uh, there needs to be anger. Yeah, it's a new landscape, isn't it? And and some of the same battles are being fought on on this new landscape as well. Rebecca, what do you what what do you say to someone who says that to you? Look, you know, being gay these days is just you know, normal. Don't worry about it. There's no need for all this all this uh, world pride uh, carry on. 
What do you say to, what do you say to people who say oh, that? Totally a need for it. That's what yeah. I'd be saying first. Totally a need for it. Um, look, let's um, celebrate um, the global resistance, the global love, um, the global unity that we have in that same fight and the similarities um, in our experiences. There's an absolute need for Pride events to um, continue and um, Equality Australia and Sydney Ward Pride have done a remarkable job um, in bringing this together. There's still real issues here in our own country that are at the table. Um, you know, the lack of investment um, by yeah, you know, our governments um, into uh, resourcing across urban, regional and remote communities um, to those uh, people that have lack of access to safe um, services for LGBTIQ plus sister girl and brother boy communities. Um, and those things need to be uh, addressed. Um, and I, I totally agree um, with the global um, approach together, a world approach together that, you know, when we see these things, the experiences can be, um, can reignite traumatic experiences from the past. And it's, it's particularly important um, for us to create futures, safe passageway futures um, for younger um, First Nations, LGBTIQ+, sister girl and brother boy people. Mm. One of my texters says, Phil, it's still an issue and will remain a big issue until everybody accepts that sexuality is part of the normal human manifestation. We're not there yet, are we, David? No, not quite. Mm. <laughs> I get the sense that humour has been a big part of your life, David. <laughs> <laughs> And which for a person like you who's been to the brink and back is, is probably one of the ways you can deal with it. It is. That was my main tool when I was um, yeah. going through those dreadful years. Yes. Right. Sadly, time has beaten us. It's been a very interesting conversation. Thanks for the, all the texts too who've said thank you for bringing these guests together and even bigger thanks to the guests for discussing their personal queer experience. It's bringing knowledge to a wider community is very important. Uh, our guests have been David Polson, who was just speaking then, one of the first people to get HIV AIDS in the 1980s, an activist uh, all his life. Michael Barnett uh, from Aleph, a queer and Jewish activist, and Rebecca Johnson, growing growing woman and former head of Brisbane Pride. Uh, thanks, Rebecca. Thank you. Good um, evening. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you. And thank you, Michael, as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Great, uh, great to have your contributions as well. David, thank you. Thank you. It's been um, great to be on. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife. 